This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have another exciting episode for you, and I am joined by my brother, John Freilich in Calgary. John, how are you doing? Hey, Mike. Doing well out here. Great to be back. Yeah, it seems like uh, Alberta has a much better handle on things compared to Ontario. Does that seem right from uh, your vantage point? Yeah, I think we've got to give a lot of credit to the public health approach that was taken by Alberta because right now our case counts are, are quite low. You know, we have had a lot of people diagnosed with COVID, but luckily those in the hospital have been relatively few. Uh, so, so things seem to be going in a very good direction right now. Okay. And like, uh, give me a ballpark figure. How many new cases did you guys have today, Saturday, May 30th? Yeah. So I don't think they've released the number for today yet, but I believe yesterday was about 23 new cases across all of Alberta. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. We're still in the sort of 300s. So Alberta for the win. All right. Well, let's jump in. Today, we're going to be going back to closer to our original format. Rather than four articles, we're going to review two. Uh, John, what do you have up for us first today? So the first paper that we're going to look at was published in New England Journal of May 7th this year, and it's a trial of lapinavir and ritonavir in adults hospitalized with severe COVID-19. This was by Cow et al. All right. And what was the research question? They wanted to know, does this combination of lapinavir and ritonavir improve clinical outcomes for patients with COVID-19? Yeah. And, you know, of course, we always start with, why is this an important topic, which feels like a silly question. But do you want to give us a bit of background on uh, this medication? Yeah. So I think the question here is, you know, why this drug? So lapinavir is a protease inhibitor that we more commonly see in the context of treatment of HIV. Ritonavir is used in combination to help increase the drug half-life. And so why are they using it for COVID-19? Well, the reason is that back in the original SARS epidemic of 2003, lapinavir was shown to have some in vitro activity against the SARS-CoV-1 one virus. Uh, there's also been some activity against MERS, which is another coronavirus in both in vitro and animal models. And so the idea here was, well, could there be benefit in patients with COVID-19? All right. That seems uh, quite reasonable. And it's good to see some biologic rationale. You know, the number of potential medications that are being tried with absolutely no rationale is unsettling. So good to hear that this one has some basis a priori. So what was the study design here? Uh, so this was a randomized control trial. It was a single center design in Wuhan, China. There was no placebo arm used due to the, in quotation marks, emergency nature of the trial. Uh, so patients were randomized to lapinavir ritonavir, which is an oral medication twice daily, as well as standard of care versus standard of care alone. Uh, they were given the treatment for 14 days. Standard of care really was, you know, whatever they thought might help someone. So that could have been giving supplemental oxygen. It could have included more aggressive things like like invasive and non-invasive ventilation, dialysis, ECMO, pressors, antibiotics. Uh, that was sort of the standard of care arm. Uh, so for the inclusion criteria, patients had to be COVID positive based on PCR confirmation, but they also had to have imaging findings as well as an O2 sat of less than 94% on room air or a PA-FiO2 ratio of less than 300 there were a few exclusion criteria. So, you know, if there was an allergy to the drug, if they had severe liver disease, if they were on certain medications which are contraindicated in the context of the lapinavir. And, and there are actually a, a number of meds that I understand can cause some interactions, including some statins, equitiapine, apparently even things like Advair. The other thing is that patients were excluded if they had a known diagnosis of HIV or if they were pregnant. 
So the outcomes that they looked at, the primary outcome was time to improvement on a seven point ordinal scale. And specifically, it was improvement by two points. So what was the scale? So number one was not hospitalized with resumption of normal activities. Number two was not hospitalized, but unable to resume normal activities. And then you go all the way up to number six, which was you're hospitalized requiring, you know, invasive ventilation or ECMO or both. Number seven was you died. There were also a number of secondary outcomes that were looked at, and what they really analyzed was what was the primary outcome at day 28. All right, so a good old-fashioned randomized trial, not placebo-controlled, and I might have mentioned it. Was there any blinding going on in this study or no? No. So the investigators were not blinded um, as well. The statisticians, there was no indication that they were blinded when they were interpreting the data either. Okay. So what did the patients look like who entered the trial? So 199 patients were randomized, 99 to lopinavir arm and 100 to the standard of care arm. 95% of patients within the lopinavir group received treatment. The median age was around 58, 60% were men, 11% with diabetes, 6.5% with cerebrovascular disease, you know, perhaps numbers that are a bit lower from some of the other trials and patient samples that we've seen. And then the time from symptom onset to randomization was a bit longer as well. So median was 13 days. And the overall mortality in this group was 22%. Now, this is compared to other reports where the mortality was sort of 11 to 15%. So there's also this question of, could this have been a sicker patient population? All right. And what were the main results? So for that primary outcome, they did not see any difference in the time to clinical improvement. So the median time to clinical improvement was 16 days in the lopinavir arm compared with 16 days in the standard of care arm. Uh, They did do a modified intention to treat analysis where they excluded patients who were in the lopinavir group but actually did not receive treatment. And when they did that modified intention to treat analysis, they did see a one-day difference in time to improvement, so 15 days compared to 16. Now, for the secondary outcomes, they did show that there was a lower 28-day mortality in the lopinavir group. This was not statistically significant, but it was 19% versus 25%. Uh, There were also signals for shorter stays in ICU, so 6 days versus 11, as well as a shorter hospitalization stays, 14 versus 16 days. They did look at some other markers, including aspects of viral RNA loads and duration of viral RNA detectability, but in this case, there was actually no significant reduction in the RNA loads and no significant reductions in the duration of RNA detectability. Now, when it comes to some of the safety issues, there were some higher rates of namely GI side effects. So nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea were certainly more common in the lopinavir group. Okay. And I mean, one thing I'm just trying to get my head around here though. So a median recovery of 16 days in both groups, of course, medians are hard to interpret. The median just means, you know, the most common day observed in the two groups, but there could still be a wide spread. So I'm just seeing this sort of hazard ratio. So for the primary outcome, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like the detected hazard ratio is 1.31. So that would suggest a 30% relative rate of improvement among people who got the lopinavir, ritonavir arm compared to placebo. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. So, you know, although there is no difference in the median days, so, you know, definitely a signal there that there might be some benefit But, you know, maybe we have to be cautious in interpreting the findings. But what are some limitations that you observe from this study? 
the main limitations of this was that it was a single center trial uh, and that investigators were not blinded. And then there's also concern that the study was underpowered in order to detect a significant event. Yeah, I can believe that. So uh, what's the take home point from your perspective on this? So you're right. You know, when we look at the median time to improvement, there was no significant reduction in that lapinavir group, uh, but there does appear to be a signal for some other important outcomes. So, you know, yes, there is this kind of perhaps 30% increase in, in improvement that we see in the lapinavir group. As well, there's maybe a signal that perhaps there's a shorter stay in hospital and shorter stay in ICU, uh, which is pretty relevant when we know just how much healthcare resources these patients can take up when they're admitted with COVID-19. And then I think that there's a lot of hypothesis generating considerations as well. So as we talked about, a lot of these patients were randomized upwards of 13 days into their illness. So what if they were started earlier on? Might that have been helpful for them if they were started sooner in their clinical illness? And then what if this drug is used more in less sick patients? Uh, because, you know, there was a higher overall mortality rate in this trial. So again, we don't know the answer to that, but it does beg the question of, you know, more studies being needed. Yeah, that's that's fair. And, you know, I think I, I want us to dwell a couple minutes on this issue with the same median. So, you know, just to kind of clarify for the listeners, let's say you had 10 people in the arm that got the drug and 10 people who got supportive care. Let's say um, in the group of 10 people that got the drug, their median time to recovery sort of ranged from four to seven, but the most common number was six. And thus, that would be the middle number, the median. If you were to contrast that to the placebo arm, where maybe their time to recovery overall was actually longer, maybe it was that it was from, you know, five days to nine days. But again, you know, most people had six and thus six would be the middle number. So I think that's a point that is just a uh, subtle but important that even though the median number of days was the same, um, there was, you know, clearly the hazard ratio suggesting there might be a benefit among individuals that got this medication. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and again, there is kind of that signal that they're seeing as well in that modified intention to treat analysis. When you really only look at patients who did get the drug, they then start to see the signal of, in fact, like a one-day improvement in clinical outcomes. All right. So practice changing for you. Uh, it sounds like there aren't any patients in Alberta to be treated, but um, if there were, would you be using Kalitra, uh, this medication on the next patients that get uh, hospitalized? So I don't know that I would necessarily be starting this medication in hospital outside of a randomized control trial. And so I think it's important that we still look at this within the context of a study. And there are ongoing trials looking at the role of lopinavir. You know, when you look on clinicaltrials.gov, there's probably at least 30 trials that are in different stages of recruitment. I think the big one that everyone knows about is the Solidarity trial, which has a number of different treatment arms, including lopinavir. And what is it? In Canada, it's called CATCO. So I think we need to keep an eye out for the results of some other trials before we really decide on using this medication in clinical practice. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this should not be standard of care, but it also shouldn't stop the clinical trials. The clinical trials should continue. One thing that I've realized is that it's really hard to enroll patients into CATCO, to be honest, especially among the sites that only have this medication because it's not well tolerated and, you know, no one wants to be getting diarrhea from a medication. So anyway, let's see what the trials show. All right, so changing gears, I'll now talk about the study that I'm going to cover entitled Remdesivir for the Treatment of COVID-19 Preliminary Report, published in the New England Journal of Medicine 
on May 22nd, aka my birthday, hence why I'm even more excited about this trial. And it was called the Act One trial. Perfect. So uh, happy belated birthday. (laughs) But aside from that, what was the question the investigators were asking? So this is quite simple. You know, does remdesivir improve clinical outcomes among patients hospitalized with COVID-19? So we were talking about, you know, maybe the biological indications for lapinavir. When it comes to remdesivir, why did this drug get chosen? Why, Why are we talking about it? So this is an inhibitor of the viral RNA-dependent RNA polymerase with inhibitory activity against SARS-CoV. And similar to Kaletra, it also has activity against the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, COVI, aka MERS-CoV. So, you know, there is a pretty good basis for why this medication could potentially work. And then some in vitro data that it works against SARS-CoV-2, which is, of course, cause of uh, COVID-19. Interestingly, this medication was developed for the treatment of Ebola. Okay, interesting. I didn't know that. So what was the design for this study? So a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial, uh, this was placebo-controlled, of remdesivir, which is an intravenous medication, uh, among adults hospitalized with COVID-19 who also had evidence of pneumonia across 60 sites in the U.S., the U.K., Europe, and Asia. And specifically, they were randomizing patients to 10 days of remdesivir versus 10 days of placebo Although if you look closely, you later learn that in Europe, they had a shortage of placebo. So what they did instead was they just hung a bag of normal saline and then put an opaque bag over top of it. In my mind, I just sort of think of it as like, uh, you know, that the sort of paper bag for a lunch or something tossed over, you know, this ivy normal saline. So right away, I'm not exactly sure if that's truly double blind. But but anyway, uh, the primary outcome here was time to recovery. And the time to recovery also applied an ordinal scale, essentially identical to um, the study that you had discussed. So patients would be included if they had evidence of infiltrates on chest imaging and uh, oxygen saturation less than or equal to 94% on room air, or if they were requiring supplemental oxygen, mechanical ventilation, ECMO, um, no limit to the duration of symptoms prior to enrollment. Um, there are some important exclusion criteria to discuss. So patients with markedly elevated uh, ALT or AST five times above the upper limit of normal, impaired renal function, need for hemodialysis, allergy, and then a few others. But I think those are the most important ones. And patients were followed through day one to day 29. Uh, I'm doing a lot of talking, but the primary outcome here, similar to yours, um, an ordinal scale. And I should just note up front that the initial plan was to look at 15-day outcomes, but they changed the primary outcome to 29-day outcomes, which was totally appropriate and was a completely blinded decision. Okay. So randomized control trial, remdesivir versus medical grade paper bag, I guess, for some patients. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So tell me, what did the patients look like? Average age 59, 65% male, 12% Asian, 20% black, 50% white, and 50% had at least two chronic medical conditions, um, half of whom had hypertension. Okay. Uh, What was the main result? 
So 1,100 patients were assessed for eligibility, 1,063 were randomized, and the Data Safety Monitoring Board recommended unblinding on the basis of findings that showed a shortened time to recovery in the remdesivir group. So these are preliminary results based on 1,059 patients. So you know, those decisions are not taken lightly. And as I've learned from being a part of some clinical trials, those decisions are made prior to the study starting in terms of what are your stopping rules. So I'll note that in both arms, about 60 people stopped the treatment due to adverse events. And as noted, this was a preliminary analysis. So 80% of patients had completed the trial through day 29. And of course, that means 20% hadn't. The results that they were focused on were essentially the first 14 days. So, you know, drum roll, please. The primary outcome showed that um, those who received remdesivir had a median recovery time of 11 days as it compared to 15 days in those who received placebo. And again, you know, really interesting, the exact same, this time hazard rate ratio, but the exact same as your study, you know, a rate ratio of 1.31. This time, the confidence intervals did not cross the null. So patients who got the drug got better faster and by about four days. And then there were some really important secondary analyses. I want to take a few minutes to talk about them. So number one, they looked at 14-day mortality, and the mortality rate was 7% among people who got remdesivir compared to 12% among people who got placebo. So that's a 5% absolute risk reduction. That's pretty incredible. And on a relative scale, it's a 30% relative reduction in the risk of mortality, albeit with confidence intervals that slightly cross the null. And then there are some beautiful Kaplan-Meier curves, which my words will not be able to do them justice, but I will just direct the listener to check these out. And essentially what they showed were that among people who were quite sick, um, there didn't seem to be a clear benefit in receiving remdesivir, so such as people on mechanical ventilation or ECMO. And, you know, we can maybe talk about why that was or potentially why that was. The other thing that's really important is that the rate of serious adverse events was lower among people who got remdesivir, okay, lower. So 21% of people had a serious adverse event if they got remdesivir as compared to 27% of people um, who got placebo. And some of the adverse events that were more common with remdesivir included fever and hyperglycemia. Wow. Okay. So some pretty important clinical outcomes, that four-day reduction when it comes to, you know, time to improvement, also a signal for mortality improvement and, you know, really not much concern from an adverse event perspective. What were some of the limitations with this trial? Yeah. So it's a good question. I don't see this as a double-blinded trial. I see this as a double-blinded trial among people from North America and Asia and in Europe, it was a bag of normal saline, okay, with a, with a opaque covering. That ain't blinded. And then the other limitation is that we need the 28-day analysis to know, were these findings truly robust, especially the potential mortality benefit? And although the lack of blinding is a limitation, I actually think the lack of blinding would push the results maybe towards the null. So, you know, you could imagine, John, if you're looking after a patient in this trial and you clearly see 
oh my gosh, this person is getting normal saline. They're not getting the active drug. Well, maybe you are then more likely to give them a drug off-label. Maybe you're more likely to give them steroids. So I guess the bias could go in either direction, but it's not as though, of course, this is a, a fatal flaw. Fair. Okay. So what's your take-home point? Um, so I think there are some clinical take-home points and then some really interesting clinical trial take-home points. So I believe that remdesivir works and... I mean, I shouldn't say I believe it. The data show that it works. And yes, we want some uh, follow-up results. The findings were consistent with an earlier study that was underpowered and that suggested benefit. And I, you know, I really think remdesivir should now be standard of care among people who are hospitalized you know, um, with COVID, whether or not it's going to work all that well among people who are ventilated and on ECMO, maybe not. But among people who are on, you know, face mask, nasal prong oxygen, this is the drug that I would want if I were hospitalized with COVID-19. And then for some interesting clinical trial points, okay, so why doesn't it work in people who are mechanically ventilated or on ECMO? Well, to be honest, maybe nothing is going to work if things are so far gone that you are on ECMO. And probably with most clinical trials, there's a sweet spot. There's a sweet spot to the patients who are most likely to benefit. And those are probably the patients that are not so sick that they're on death's doorstep but also not so, so well that you don't need anything <laughs> to improve these people. So this idea of a sweet spot is something that I think is an important point from the clinical trials perspective. And then also, you know, when I first read this, I thought, how on earth could a placebo have more serious adverse events than a drug? But then I realized, if you are not getting a drug that works you are more likely to go into renal failure. You are more likely to go into respiratory failure. So just a beautiful example of one, uh, why we need placebos, and number two, why placebos might be associated with an increased risk of adverse events, not because placebos hurt people, but the lack of a medication that truly works. Yeah, that can definitely hurt someone if they don't get a medication that works. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point, and I actually didn't consider that. So, I mean, I think you've already addressed this, but practice changing? Yes, absolutely practice changing. I think it should be standard of care. Will I buy stock in the company? No, because I don't want to have a conflict of interest. But yeah, this is I see this as a very, very positive event in the management of people with COVID-19. So as a result, the CATCO Solidarity Trial are... On hold isn't the right word, but right now there's an interim analysis going on. And if the listeners are interested, you know, Solidarity has uh, 3,200 patients randomized already. So I expect in the next two weeks, we will find out either that it worked or that it just didn't meet the stopping criteria and the trial will continue. And then the UK equivalent of the Solidarity trial is called Recovery. They've randomized 12,000 people. And I anticipate they will also be doing an interim analysis to see if potentially the remdesivir arm should be stopped. You know, maybe it's unethical for patients to not get that drug. And we will find that out soon as well. All right. Interesting. Okay. I'll have to eagerly await those results. Yes, I am certainly eager to find out what they show. 
All right, so uh, now we will transition to Kieran Quinn's favorite part of the show, the, the previous director and uh, still uh, plays a big role in the show, the Good Stuff segment. So, John, what are you reading about? What's caught your eye? Something that's positive. Give me something good. Yeah, so the good stuff. And, you know, I think what we should just point out is to give Kieran a lot of credit for this segment. In the mainstream media, we've seen uh, Jim Halpert, what's his real name? The actor from The Office put together his good, what did he call it? The good news or some good news? Oh, yes, yes, that's right. That bugger. <laughs> yeah. So I think Kieran needs some credit for that because uh, this is the same idea. So for this good stuff, we're going to go local here, keep it to the province of Alberta. The Calgary Herald had had a nice article about some residents in Calgary who are raising money to purchase tablets for inpatients that are unable to communicate effectively with their family members during COVID. Uh, as you know, we've really had this really tough hospital policy of not allowing visitors to come in to see their loved ones outside of some very tight criteria. So, you know, purchasing tablets to help facilitate communication is a great initiative. So a lot of credit to the residents in Calgary working on this project. Yes, that, that certainly is terrific. You know, the other thing that they should do is just email the people at like Apple or where, wherever. Um, there's been a big donation spearheaded by uh, Alan Detsky. He got TELUS to donate like hundreds of cell phones to Mount Sinai Hospital. So our patients uh, have access to cell phones. And then I can't remember, I think maybe Nathan Stahl or someone else also procured some tablets. So that's that's terrific. Uh, good on the residents in Calgary. So what's caught my eye? Um, again, good news from the West Coast. Uh, this was just a terrific, terrific podcast interview of uh, Bonnie Henry. Bonnie Henry has been leading the public health response in British Columbia and has just done a terrific job. I, I recently found out that she was actually in Toronto before she went to BC. And I don't think we're going to get her back. But gee, I, I wish we had her in Ontario right now. So as you learn from this podcast, there have now been songs written about Bonnie Henry, and then a very famous shoe designer or, or shoemaker. I, I know nothing about shoes, but uh, he designed and created these shoes for Bonnie Henry and then sold them and all the proceeds have gone to charity and, you know, it sort of sold out immediately. So that was kind of cool. Jeez, that's great. Yeah. So, all right. Take home point. Uh, Alberta and British Columbia are the place you want to be in the setting of a pandemic. <laughs> My gosh. Yeah, we're doing something right, but stay safe out there, Mike. Uh, yeah. 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 Seriously. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, John, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, record the episode. Uh, stay safe out in Alberta. And, you know, let's plan to record in another maybe few weeks when we have additional good news to share with our listeners. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Sounds great. See you, John. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.